Listen, I want to make a, a little bit of an explanation on something before we get into our passage tonight. On the recommended resources that are in the back of your notebook, uh, they're divided up into topics. The first one is sanctification, and the second one is marriage and family. And I want to make sure that nobody buys the books that I put in this list with the wrong impression. The fourth one down, called Maximum Joy uh, by Dave Anderson, if you want to put a check mark there. Two more down, or three more down, The Disciple Maker by Gary Dickinson and Earl Rodmacher. And then the next one, The Epistles of John, Walking in the Light of God's Love by Zane Hodges. All three of those are commentaries. They are not books on marriage. They are commentaries on the passages that we're going to be addressing tonight, but I put them in there as my recommended resources, and I hope by the time we're done tonight, you'll understand why. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight for what we have heard, and now what we will examine, and I pray that you will use this to equip each of us not only as it pertains to our own marriages and our own relationships with other people, but our relationship with you, and also to be able to assist others as well. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. An authentic fellowship conference, in my opinion, would be incomplete if there wasn't the mention of 1 John. The epistle of 1 John is a book that opens up the very start with the subject of fellowship. And therefore, when John Morrison had asked me to share tonight, my first response was from the book of 1 John. But the thing about 1 John is that 1 John does not mention the subject of marriage. 1 John does not address husbands or wives. 1 John is not a book that normally is used in counseling or in teaching on the subject of marriage. But I hope that by the end of this evening, you will be more convinced at least of the applicability of this wonderful epistle to every relationship we have, but including marriage. A passage like Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2 that were presented tonight, to me that's kind of like medicine that a doctor prescribes for a particular ailment. But a nutritionist or a dietitian, my sister is one, they outline a protocol that deals with general health. They give you a, a bigger picture because it's dealing with the whole body. And both of them are needed. The doctors zeroing in on the one issue and a dietitian that deals with all the issues. The passages you heard tonight are like the medicine from a doctor. And the passage that we'll address now is like a dietitian. It's the broad topic of our relationships with each other and our relationship primarily with God. The subject is fellowship. Koinonia, John deals with fellowship in fact, I believe that it is true that his usage of the word fellowship ranks up at the top of all New Testament usages as John uses the word. Tonight we want to look into 1 John. 
And I'd like to have you open your Bibles to that epistle towards the end of your New Testament. It's after Peter's epistles and, of course, after Hebrews. And we want to focus in on chapter 2 tonight, but I think it's important to give a more extensive presentation of the context. If the context isn't understood, I think it's easy to misinterpret the passages that we, or the passage that we want to focus our attention on tonight. John's theology is fascinating to me. I have continuing to be observing the Johannine writings, and in fact, I'm in a project right now of looking at the comparison of John's gospel with the Pentateuch. And I am almost blown away by the literary style of John as he wove various aspects of the first five books of the Bible into his own. And he starts the book by saying the law came through Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. But in his book, what he writes for an evangelistic reason, he tells us at the end of his book, I write so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you might have life in his name. This is the only book in the New Testament that is explicitly stated that its purpose was to win unbelievers to faith in Christ. It's the one and only book that states outright that that's its purpose. And yet within that book, one-fourth of the Gospel of John is what is called the Last Discourse. Now, some people call it the Upper Room Discourse, but the problem with that is that not all of it happened in the Upper Room. So it's better to call it His Last Discourse, and it's what He told His disciples the night before He was crucified. And of course, He rose from the dead, and after He rose from the dead, His post-resurrection appearances were much different than what it was when He was with the disciples before His death. He did make appearances to them, but it seems like he came and went and came and went. But before his death, he was with them a great deal of time. And in this last discourse, which is recorded for us in John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, about one-fourth of the book takes place in just a few hours of time. His audience is the 11 believing disciples. Judas, the only unbelieving disciple, had left by this time. He went into the practice of his betrayal. And that leaves the 11 disciples who had put their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. They believed him to be the Christ. And on the eve of his crucifixion, and 40 days prior to his ascension, he gives this discourse to his 11 disciples who he loved. The emphasis, he says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to go to a place that someday you will meet me there. A place that I am making for you to live eternally. But I will come again. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. But in the meantime, he teaches in this discourse, I'm going to leave you somebody. I'm going to leave you the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one who is called alongside. And he is going to be with you. And he is going to indwell you. 
And He is going to be present with you through this whole time until I come to receive you to Myself. And so the last discourse gives a significant amount of material and information related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But He also teaches something else which John mentions again in his epistle. Is that Jesus addresses the subject of abiding in Him. The word abide is meno. It means to remain. And the way that Jesus used it in the analogy of a vine, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, basically meaning as the branch is plugged into the vine, as it stays connected to the vine, it bears fruit. My dad raised trees, he sold trees, uh, fruit trees for orchards and etc., he was an expert prune, pruner, I guess, or a vine dresser, we would say, or an apple tree dresser, whatever the name would be. And he, he knew what branches to cut so that the tree would bear even more fruit. And Jesus said that's what the Father does. He prunes the vine so that it will bear more fruit. And what God does is He takes us through difficult situations as He prunes our life through trials in order that... He can make us into more fruitful Christians. He's the master gardener. He's the master keeper of the vineyard. His process of abiding, or he teaches as we stay connected to him, and then he later teaches in a few verses later that a lot of that connection is taking place through his word and through prayer. He says, if my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you because you'll be praying your prayers in accordance with the word. And when we pray our prayers in accordance with his word, he says, those prayers will be answered. So abiding in Jesus Christ as he is physically gone right now involves us getting into this book and engaging and communicating with him in prayer and letting him communicate to us through his word. And that's what the last discourse taught. What John does, he takes the theology of that discourse and he translates it into a letter called the Epistle of 1 John. It was written to the churches of Asia Minor, most of which are in modern Turkey today. And his emphasis is on fellowship and his word and a key word that he uses in his epistle is the word to abide. Abiding in Christ and what that means. When we go to the epistle, he says that which we, meaning the apostles, that which we have seen and heard and gazed upon and handled, we make known to you so that you can see and hear as well. And what he means in that phrase is that we were able not only to see him and hear him, but we were able to actually physically look at him. In fact, we able to even touch him. And John himself was the one that was called the one who leaned on Jesus' breast. But he's gone now. So you can't see him physically and you can't touch him physically like we could, he says. But you can hear him through us and you can see him through us as we communicate to you about Him. And that's what all of us are doing when we read the Gospels, is that we are hearing the account of the apostles, and we're able to see and hear the Savior, Jesus Christ, through their message.
The theme is fellowship. The theme of this epistle is koinonia. And how koinonia is evidenced by love. With God and with one another. Love for God and love for one another. He goes on in his epistle and he gives a warning. And there are two primary enemies that are going to hinder and seek to thwart our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another. Our love for him and our love for one another, those two things remain the enemies in the 21st century as much as they were in the first century. The first enemy is called the world system. He defines it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We don't have time tonight to define those more specifically, but the world system is constantly drawing for our attention as well. Every day that we go out into this world, the world system, one of those three or a combination thereof, is seeking to gain our attention and our affections. The other enemy that John says is going to be a detriment to experiencing a fellowship with and for God and one another is false teaching. And so in this book, he addresses those that were teaching things that were in error, even though they had claimed that they had association with the apostles. And John says, oh, no, they didn't. Don't believe for a moment that we endorse their message as much as they're trying to connect themselves with us. And today we have pastors and we have elders even in this church that are constantly on guard about false teaching because the worst false teaching and the most dangerous false teaching is not things that are flagrant like the cults. It's the things that come under the Christian title from people that hold up their Bibles and even quote Scripture once in a while. They're the ones that come in in stealth. They're the ones that come in like wolves in sheep's clothing. And John says they will come in and persuade people. And their false teaching is actually going to lead people away from the fellowship with Jesus Christ. So in verses one, chapter 1, verse 5, through all the way through chapter 2, verse 11, he gives a warning. And basically the warning is this. He warns about those two enemies. He says, this needs to take place. Is pursuing a fellowship with God. And so in the first verses that are included in chapter 1, he teaches that we would have an openness to God. And as we go into his word, that we would let him use his word to cleanse us. And so he says... If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But if we say that we walk in the light, but yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. If we say, He says in this passage, that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. And His truth or His word is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, singular, we make God a liar. 
and his word is not in us. And what John is teaching is this. The person who is growing in fellowship with God has an openness to the ministry of his word for cleansing. The word of God brings comfort. It brings encouragement. It brings instruction. It gives guidance. But it also brings cleansing because one of the ministries of the word of God is conviction. But it's not the kind of conviction that leads a person to go to bed at night, fall on their knees before they crawl under the, into, the, into the sack and say, God, forgive me for all the sins I did today. That's not the type of confession that John is speaking about. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, he's talking about specific things. And as the Word of God shows us things in our lives and in our practice or in our hearts, in our minds, what we're thinking or dwelling on. And he points out that this needs to be taken care of. The one who admits before God this is sin, he says that's the one who is forgiven. And not only is he forgiven for the sin that he or she confessed, he's forgiven for every sin, even the ones that God has not yet revealed, because I am convinced if God revealed every sin and every aspect of sin in our lives, I don't think we could physically live. But what God does is he wants a growing relationship, and so he overlaps us, and he wants this to be more and more and more, his communion with us, so that when he comes in, because he is light, his light of the word of God starts showing spots in our life that need cleansing. If we say that we have no sin, the fellowship ceases. If he has shown us what needs cleansing and confession and we deny that it exists, the fellowship process ceases because John says, in him is no darkness at all. He will not put up with it. But if we see the sin that he points out and we confess it, He's faithful and just to forgive it. And not only does He forgive us for the sin that we confess, He'll forgive us for the sins that we don't even know about yet. And then as time goes on, He'll show more, and then more, and then more. And I can't for the life of me imagine a Christian who is growing in fellowship with God who doesn't confess sin at least once a day. As God works in our lives, He points out things for cleansing, not to condemn us, but to increase our intimacy with Him. Because He cannot fellowship with darkness. So as these things are pointed out and confessed and cleansing happens, that fellowship deepens and deepens and deepens. And that's what John's epistle teaches us. And yes, it does impact messages, uh, marriage. You know, I love the way John does something. It just ministered. I thought about it even in the last 24 hours. He always says, if we, if we, if we say that we have no sins, but if we confess our sin, if we say that we have not sinned, but if we walk in the light. I've noticed that people that have judgmental spirits, it's you. I almost shudder. I, will, I can't listen to sermons that I preached 20 years ago in North Dakota and Iowa because I did a lot of you. We, you need to change. You need this. You need that. You need that. And 
As time has gone on, I find myself doing a lot more of we. <laughs> because we're included. And even the apostles say, if we. Because the apostles themselves dealt with personal sin. The apostles themselves were growing in a deeper fellowship with Jesus Christ. Some observations that I'd like to mention before we get into our main passage. We deceive ourselves, but we never deceive God, and we usually don't deceive other people. Other people can oftentimes see us better than we can, and of course, God sees us fully. And that's why we need to listen to one another. Because if we say that we have no sin, that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't exist. But other people oftentimes can see things in our lives that need sharpening and changing before we can see them ourselves. I appreciated very much a number of years back that Mark Carey came to the pastoral staff with an evaluation form, not about his ministry, but about his life. And he asked, what things do you see that need changing? He was very aware that he cannot see everything that other people can see and that he wanted God to use our observations to help cleanse himself. That's humility. And all of us would do well if we would be ones who are open to people who love us enough, as Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We deceive ourselves, but we can never deceive God, and usually we don't deceive ourselves. And again, notice how if we say... We can say that we have no sin by going to church. We can say that we have no sin by having devotions in the early morning hours. We can say that we have no sin by memorizing Scripture. But the point is, is that fellowship with God is evidenced another way. And it's evidenced by the way that we love one another. Fellowship with God and love for Him is evidenced by how we love the person that's sitting next to you, the one that you live with. And that's what John deals with in the next passage. This epistle is not, as many commentators have said, and I think wrongly, that this is an epistle that is to help people determine whether they're really a Christian or not. That's not at all what John is addressing. He had no doubt that his readers were God's children, born again. They had put their faith in Christ alone for eternal life, believed that he died for their sins and rose from the dead. They were trusting in Christ alone, and they were now children of God. He never doubts that. Because it's not a book about testing whether or not you have life. It's a book that tests whether we have fellowship with God. It's a book of the evidence of fellowship with God. And that leads us into verses 3 through 11, which I want to take a closer look at tonight. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, By this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. The passage, I think, that gets misinterpreted. Oftentimes it's interpreted as, we know that we're Christians if we keep His commandments. But John is not saying that. This word know, used twice, but in two different tenses. 
In the Greek tense, the original language of the New Testament, the first one is a present tense. If we, we know, we presently know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. We presently know that we know Him. The second know is in another tense. It's called the perfect tense. And what's interesting is that any time the perfect tense is used with a stative verb, it always means of greater emphasis or intensity. So what John is saying is, we can know now that we know Him intensely. We can know now that we know Him well and deeply and intimately if we keep His commandments. The word know has a variety of usages in the New Testament. Much of the time, it's not how we use, do you, we say, do you know Christ? That means, are you born again? Have you believed in Christ for eternal life? But much of the time, the New Testament writers use know in a different way. Patty and I, I was, came to Christ when I was 11 years old. I was watching Billy Graham on TV. I've often told people if Billy Graham was on TV in my house with my mother, nothing else was on. No channels were turned to Andy Griffith or Bonanza or anything else. It was Graham. But this night in particular at 11 years old, I came to believe in Jesus as my Savior, that he was the Christ and the way of eternal life. And so when he died, it was a little difficult for me, but... It was sweet and bitter at the same time, and I told Patty, I said, I just want to do this. I know that's not him in there, but I just want to do it. And we waited three and a half hours in line to get into the Capitol Rotunda last Wednesday to honor him. Now, when we were going through that line, Ann Graham Lotz was standing just a few feet from me. She was kind of surrounded by people, and I didn't want to bother her. I'd, I'd already met her one time. I went to a conference where she spoke, and I went up to her and shook her hand, and I know Ann Graham Lotz. No, I don't. I met her. I'm sure she forgot my name about three more people down the line. Maybe not, but if I was to say that I know her, that would be deceptive. I met her, but I wouldn't say that I know her, but I know Evie. McNutt, and I know Dennis even more, and I know Mark Carey, and I know John Morrison, I know Bill Hutchison, but I really know her. I know her real deeply. Because there's different degrees of knowledge. And John says, we know that we know him intensely when we keep his commandments. Notice then what he says. Verse 4, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Jesus said, if you abide in me. To be in Christ means to be a Christian. To be in Him means to be abiding in Him. And that's a distinction. That's a difference. And He says, if we are keeping His commandments, it is by this that we know that we are abiding in Him, that we are in Him. 
He who says, verse 6, that he abides in him ought also himself to walk as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Now listen to this. Verse 9, if we jump to there. He who says he is in the light or in fellowship and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. I'd like to have you understand that he did not say who hates his brethren, plural. And folks, I want to share with you as it relates to fellowship with God, our fellowship with God is very much connected to our relationship to one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, husbands and wives, And in order for the fellowship with God to be hindered or even broken, it takes hatred of only one person. Just one. The person who says, I'm in fellowship. I have my time in the Word. I go to church. I pray. I go to small groups. And and yet harbor a hatred for someone. John says, you're a liar. But the one who keeps his commandments is the one who is in true fellowship. We see in this passage in verse 5 the reciprocal nature of love and fellowship. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. In other words, our love for God and knowing his love for us as we obey His commandments primarily to love our brother, every last one of them. Our love for God is demonstrated by that, and His love for us becomes more known and perfected by us. A number of years ago, when I was experiencing a very tough time in ministry, I went into a depression, and I never forget going to a counselor in Denver. We were living in North Dakota at the time, and went to speak with this counselor who worked primarily with pastors and missionaries. And he gave me an entire week to meet with him six hours a day for five days. And the pinnacle of those five days for me was he asked me this question, Do you believe God loves you? And I said, Yes. And then he said, do you feel that he loves you? And I said, no. Because God doesn't only want us to have an intellectual understanding that he loves us. He wants us to have an experiential, deep, intimate, intense awareness of his great love for us. And that's why Paul says, that he prays that we would know the width and height and depth of the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I has loved you, that you also love one another, and by this All will know that you are my disciples. 
my followers, my learners, if you have love for one another. And in John chapter 14, he writes this. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him. Now listen. And I will manifest myself to him. I will open his or her heart. And they will have an understanding in all of their being, mind, will, and emotions they'll be able to comprehend my love more as they keep my commandment. And my commandments are summed up to love one another. We need to revisit the definition of hate. And tonight in one message, I don't have time to show you from 1 John how John defines hate later in the epistle, but it's this, whenever you are seeking the demise of someone else. Whenever we seek the demise of someone else, we can be assured that it's hatred. We redefine it. We'll say, I'm frustrated, or I'm impatient with that person, or that person aggravates me. We use different terms because hate is an awful harsh term. But John says that whenever we desire the demise of someone else, even their death, and I think it's very accurate to say that we desire that more than what we want to admit to ourselves. With, person, with some individuals. If we have a secret enjoyment when something negative happens to them, you can be sure that you hate that person. When a person is receiving accolades or compliments that bug you, and you might want to question whether hatred is existing, if you find yourself enjoying slander of them or ridicule of them or somehow enjoying their failures or when their kids rebel and there's a secret enjoyment of it then hatred is there but then he says if we love we are obeying his commandments what is love he defines it and that's where i would definitely like to read this to you. Let me just read it and then I'll give you the passage. He defines love and he says this. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for one another for the brethren. Whoever has the world's good and goods and sees his brother in needs and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love is by action. Love is by sacrificial giving to other people in a variety of ways. And think particularly of your spouse. The Sermon on the Mount says it's easy to love people that love you. But he says, I command you to love those who hate you. How can we tell if we're actually loving people that hate us? Jesus says, take action on it. One of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that one way in which we show love is that we greet one another. Have you ever had a person in your life that you've struggled with, that you've had contention with or conflict with, 
even another brother or sister in Christ, and you see them walking down the hallway and you want to dodge for the nearest bathroom? Because greeting somebody is an act of love. To give, he says, if they're thirsty, to give them something to drink. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they have a flat tire on I-81, to pull over and help them or give them a ride. When they're sick, to bring them a meal or drop them a card. When their kids are honored with some significant accomplishment, to applaud with them. To congratulate them. When they do something that's worthy of a compliment, to make sure to verbally communicate it. That's easy to do with people that love us, but when we do that with people that we find difficult to love, we are laying down our lives for them as Christ laid down His life for us. We are obeying His commands. And in doing so, He does something very special. He discloses Himself to us. He begins to manifest himself to us in greater ways than ever. Some concluding observations and applications as it relates to marriage. How does conflict in marriage help us to grow? First of all, challenging relationships are an opportunity to deeper fellowship with Jesus Christ. I've often told people, it's easy for me to say that I'll take a bullet from my wife, but the real question is, will I do the dishes tonight when we get home? I can say that I'll go out and earn a living for her, but do I come home in the evening when she's had a a long day and say, here, take the Starbucks gift card and go have yourself a cup of coffee and take whatever time you need? Real love is laying down our lives for people and especially for the people that are difficult because the more difficult people we have in our lives and when we demonstrate love by action, that action has a way of changing our feelings toward that person and that action has a way of increasing our awareness of the love of God for us because he begins to disclose himself in a greater way. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And anyone who keeps my commandments, I will love him. And I will show myself to him. The hardest time in our ministry was back in my home state. It was our second pastorate. The church ended up splitting through conflict. The splinter group asked me to stay on. At first I declined. Later I accepted we had nowhere else to go. In that town of about 6,000 people, you see one another in grocery stores and football games. And I'll never forget one day, and I share this with a number of people that are sitting in these chairs in a class that I teach, or they've heard a couple times maybe, but I'll never forget one day when I was walking home a couple years later after the church had had such division and conflict that I saw a woman in our church, the previous church, who I detested. In fact, I held her accountable for the lot of the division that we had. 
And I detested her. And when I was walking home for a bite to eat, I saw her pull her car out on the street from a diagonal parking spot and her convertible Mustang froze. It died. And it was near the busiest street in town. I approached her. At first thought, it's like, this couldn't happen to a better person. (laughs) But I decided to do something different. I took action. And I went over into the middle of the street. And I said, put it in neutral and I'll push you back into the parking spot. And she said, no, thank you. And I walked away. And I promise you tonight... I have never had an ill feeling towards her again. The Apostle Paul says, Concerning your enemies, let me take the vengeance. But as for you, if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they have a flat tire, help them change it. If they're stalled in the middle of a street, push them out or at least offer to. And in doing so, you will overcome evil by doing good. And he's not speaking about their evil. He's talking about the evil in our own hearts. Do not be overcome by evil, he says, but overcome evil with good. When we do good, the evil is defeated. And the love of God becomes more perfected. From the moment that I was walking up to this incident to the moment I left the incident to the rest of the way home the rest of the way home I was in another step closer to knowing him intensely because that's when he manifests himself when love is difficult Fellowship has the opportunity to deepen more. And folks, that includes living with a difficult spouse. There's a man here in Winchester, doesn't go to our church, but I meet with him periodically. No intimacy in the marriage, hasn't been for years and years. Nothing but derogatory statements and put-downs. And when a man can go home every night and lay his life down for that woman, that is remarkable. And they are the ones that I believe enter into the deepest relationship with Jesus Christ. When we love, we're not guaranteed love in return. If it is, everybody do it. (laughs) But we are guaranteed that when we love through giving ourselves to other people in whatever way. Whatever physical way, whatever monetary way, time, even a greeting. That love invites a greater intimacy with God. Because He promises He will manifest Himself to us. We need to revisit the standards and measurements that we use to determine spiritual maturity. Wow, he really knows the Bible. Big deal. Wow, 
She's really a good teacher. Big deal. Wow. That guy's memorized four books in the New Testament verbatim. That's nice. God says, the one who loves, who keeps my commandment to love his brother, it is the he who knows me intensely. Because in John, 1 John, John says, God is love. We must realize the applicability to the marriage context and how marital conflict is connected to our abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Peter tells us this very same principle in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Men, women, you can go ahead and listen to this, but men, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Treat her as a weaker vessel, meaning more fragile, like a beautiful hand-painted china cup from England. Treat her with care. And then he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The way we treat one another in the marriage context impacts our own personal relationship with God. The wives, you're not off the hook either. Because John's words of laying our lives down for one another includes all of us. Includes all of us, men and women alike. Jesus said these words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will dine with him and he with me. Do you want to dine with Jesus Christ? I know I do. And the opportunity for that, the opportunity for Him to sit down and enjoy and sup with us is available more intensely when we love and when we lay down our lives. Not only for the people that love us, but even more so for the people who don't. Let's pray. Father, you have given us the spirit to obey all things that you've called us to. Give us opportunities to love, and we will trust that you'll enable us to do it because you've already given the enablement through the Spirit of God. Open our eyes to ways which we can lay down our lives for one another, and especially open our eyes to ways we can do that to those who we find ourselves detesting and wanting their demise, even if that person is the one that we live with. 
And so, Father, we want to know the love of you and your son, Jesus Christ, more intensely. And we thank you for the opportunity to experience that. We know the enemies, the world, the false teaching, and the evil hatred that can stir up within us. Guard our hearts. Continue to show yourself to us. Cleanse us. When those attitudes begin, even in its most minute form, reveal them to us that we can confess these things and not harbor these things and to know you more and to grow in your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.